Would you open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 4? And I have a Bible trivia question for you to begin our day today. Let's see who can think of the answer. You know, usually we will say that the Bible was given to us by Jewish, the Jewish people and that it was written by Jews. Is that technically true to every detail? Okay, so who are some exceptions who were the human side of the authorship of Scripture who were not Jewish? Luke, and he wrote what? Two books. He wrote Luke, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. Who else? Come on, what are we studying right now? Nebuchadnezzar wrote one chapter or a part of one chapter. He did. Daniel had to step in and pen the section that talks about Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. <laughs> he didn't write that part of it, but Nebuchadnezzar, basically, this is his testimony tract, isn't it? Daniel chapter 4 was written by Nebuchadnezzar, and he was a Gentile. And there's one more. Who wrote a book before Moses wrote the Pentateuch? Aha! Job! Job. Okay, all right. Job was one who the, uh, the rabbis call a Gentile prophet. He wrote the book of Job. It's actually, time-wise, the first book written in the Bible. Now, chronologically, we have the Pentateuch before Job, but Job is the oldest book in the Bible, and it was before Abraham about the time of Abraham, but before the establishment of the Hebrew people. All right, um, what I want to do in, uh, to open up in, in an introduction is just read from our lesson last time, verses 1 to 18, um, because I have rather a long lesson, so let me just read that, and, and that might shorten up the lesson a little bit, and then we'll get to where we are today. So um, let's look at ne uh, Nebuchadnezzar giving his praiseful preface in verses 1 to 3, and then in verses 4 to 18, which is all we covered last time, we had what we called the perplexing proclamation. So I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll jump into today's lesson. All right, begins with Nebuchadnezzar saying that he's Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> the king, and he's writing unto all people, nations, and languages. What he wrote was a... Um, it was actually a uh, royal proclamation to everyone in his whole kingdom. So he says, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is after his seven years of monomania. You see that word? It looks like we're going to have a biology lesson today, doesn't it, by some of the terms up on the board. <laughs> but this is after he came out the other end of those seven years of insanity, and he is a new creature in Christ, isn't he? You can tell just by those words right there. It sounds like the beginning of a Pauline epistle. And now here we start his flashback as he tells us what had happened actually eight years previously. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. And remember that word flourishing in the Aramaic meant growing green. He was growing green. He was prospering in every way in his palace in his retirement years. 
And this, remember, chapter 4 is some 15 years after the fiery furnace experience or event in chapter 3. So this is 15 years later. He says he was at rest in his house in his retirement years, and he says in verse 5, I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I a decree. He's always making decrees, isn't he? It's interesting because in today's lesson, God issues a decree against him. <laughs> but here he's making another decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon. He didn't learn his lesson the first time that they're always... They can't ever pull through for him, but he, and he still calls in all the wise men before him that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them. What's different about that from chapter 2? He actually told them the dream this time. He didn't have them guess what it was. He told them the dream, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But at the last Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. And now he begins with what he saw. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven. And the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. No matter where you stood on the earth, you could see the tree. It was so big. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. And I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed. That sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, doesn't it? <laughs> I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and unholy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree. And that's why we called last time's lesson what? Timber, <laughs> cut down the tree and cut off his branches. Notice the change in pronouns from it to his. Cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beast get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. And here was the really bad news. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times or seven years pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent. Now here's the whole purpose for the decree. That the, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basis of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Now that's where we left off. We um, are now coming to the third part of our outline for chapter 4, and I've called it pronounced purpose, if you can see that up on the board. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 27 in this lesson, which I entitled Choice.
Somebody has a choice. King Nebuchadnezzar has a very, very important choice to make in his life, which is really the same choice all men, all women have to make. Will it be grace, God's grace, or do you choose to graze? Grace or graze? Well, he chose to graze. A lot of people just graze away their lives like cattle in the field, really live a whole life without any meaning and purpose. But that was his choice, grace or grace. So as we look at pronounced purpose, we're going to divide that into two parts. We're going to first of all look at the dream about the king, and then we're going to look at the decree on the king. So let's begin by looking at the dream about the king. And this is a lot of repetition, but that's the way it is in the scripture. So let's look at verses 19 to 23 now. <clears throat> 19. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, of course, in Babylonian, was astonished. There's that word again. <laughs> he was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. See, the dream didn't only trouble Nebuchadnezzar, it also troubled Daniel. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar, which is Daniel, of course, answered and said, My lord... The dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. In other words, I wish this dream wasn't about you, but about your enemies. Verse 20, the tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation, it is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong. For thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one coming down from heaven and saying, hew down the tree, or hew the tree down, and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. I'm going to stop right there because then he gets into the interpretation. You know, telling the most powerful man on earth that he is about to be cut down is not one of the most desirable aspects of a prophet's job description, do you think? A lot of prophets have had to give dooming messages to powerful men, but that's exactly what, Daniel, what God was requiring Daniel to do in this particular situation. It was actually the reason that God had put Daniel where he was as the king's most trusted advisor. And it was why God had given him the gift of dream interpretation in the first place, right? That's why he was there for such a time as this. Well, as soon as Daniel heard the king give him the dream, the minute he heard it, his God-given ability, his special God-given gift or whatever you want to call it, kicked in and he understood immediately the meaning of the dream. He knew that it predicted immense shame and disgrace and humiliation for King Nebuchadnezzar. And he was concerned. Daniel was concerned for him. 
Also, we could say that his troubled spirit and his concern would also likely be for his people, the Jewish people, because they could potentially suffer greatly under the reign of another king, a different king. Remember how they're now protected under the decree that King Nebuchadnezzar issued after the fiery furnace episode? He said if anyone dared to speak a word against the God of the Hebrews, they would be what? His favorite thing to do. Dice people and, you know, up. So, um, so the Jews over the whole, his whole kingdom were basically protected. They were safe under King Nebuchadnezzar and his decree. So it could be different for the Jewish people under a different king. Or what if while Nebuchadnezzar was in his crazy state for seven years, the Chaldeans decided to take over and kind of run the government. They were very anti-Semitic, weren't they? So I think Daniel's concern was for both the king and for his own people. Now, even though very few Jews whose homeland and whose temple had been utterly destroyed by this king, by Nebuchadnezzar, and their families had been torn apart by death and by the, by the exiles, and their very freedoms were lost, right? They had no freedom anymore, no religious freedom, no kind of freedom. Um, as they were taken captives into Babylon. Although very few Jews would have prayed on a regular basis, God save the king, and really mean it, you know, spiritually save the king. Yet Daniel had done just that for decades. He had now been serving the king for decades. I don't know, he's about, he's probably, Daniel's probably in his 50s at this point in time, early 50s. You know, have you ever found out that when you pray long enough for someone, even maybe someone who's hurt you or someone you don't even like, if you pray for that person long enough, maybe God doesn't do anything in that person's heart, but he does a work in your own heart, doesn't he? Because the longer you pray for someone, the more... The miracle's in your own heart because you come to really genuinely care for that person. He changes you. And you, you can even get to love someone that maybe previously you really despised. Well, that's just God working, but that's exactly what had happened in Daniel's heart. I mean, no one had hurt Daniel as much as King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Just terrible what he had done as a young teenager, tearing him from his family and everything. Um, but Daniel was such a man of God that he was able to see King Nebuchadnezzar through the eyes of the Lord. And when you see people through the eyes of the Lord, you see them as lost and, and um, floundering. He saw that Nebuchadnezzar had no true peace. He had no true, true hope for his eternal salvation. He saw him as, even though he had everything that the world had to offer, Yet, Daniel saw him as a man about to perish and lose his eternal soul. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And that's how Daniel saw King Nebuchadnezzar. And he had come to love the king. That's what this fourth chapter demonstrates to us. He was seriously upset for the king. It says, for one hour he stood there troubled and astonished at the meaning of the dream. And he hesitated to give the interpretation of it, not because he feared for himself, which may have been the case with the wise men, 
Maybe that's why they didn't give the king the interpretation. But he wasn't fearing for himself. He was like Esther, you know, if I perish, I perish <laughs> for giving him the truth. But he, was, he hesitated because of what it meant for the king himself. Daniel's delay was not the delay of perplexity. He wasn't sitting there wondering, I wonder what this means. Let's see, i got to figure it out. It wasn't the, the silence of perplexity, and it was not the silence of fear. It was really the silence of compassion and love. And yet he knew he had an obligation. He had an obligation both to God, and he had an obligation to his earthly king. He had an obligation to his heavenly king and his earthly king. He needed to speak the truth. He must speak the truth, and he did and he did it with just the perfect balance of love and truth and boldness. And that's how you and I should be when we tell people, people don't like to hear the truth, do they? That they're a sinner in need of a savior. Um, but when we do that, we should never do so pride, proudly. You know, we should have just that perfect balance of genuine love for them, compassion, remembering where we came from ourselves, but boldness, we need to be bold when we present the, the gospel. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a good discerner of men's character, even though he didn't do too well on himself, right? But he did pretty good at judging others, and he had noted um, that Daniel was different. He had noted that he was a true man of integrity and that he was a man who could be trusted implicitly. And he did notice Daniel's true concern for him. Daniel, he knew, would not make up an interpretation just to please the king. It is also most probable that the king suspected that the dream concerned him. Don't you think he did? think he did. And, you know, he knew that first dream had concerned him. He was the head of gold. And I'm sure he thought, uh-oh, this is the, and it doesn't sound too good. I think that's why he was troubled. He knew this dream somehow related to him, and it didn't sound, it wasn't a very good prognosis for his future. And yet, realizing Daniel's genuine concern for him, his genuine compassion, he urges Daniel. He says, you know, go ahead, tell me the interpretation. Tell me the truth. I need to hear it. Now, Daniel was a natural diplomat, and so he answered the king by saying, in effect, my lord, I truly wish that this dream was about those who hate you. I wish the interpretation of this dream was about your enemies, your adversaries, and not you. Now, think what he could have said. What could Daniel have said? He could have said, I've been warning you for years, O king, haven't I? <laughs> Get your pride under control. I've been warning you, I've told you repeatedly that the only reason you sit as king in the first place is because the Most High God put you there and everything you have and everything you are is because of him and you are accountable to him and because you haven't listened to me over 40 years or whatever it's been, you're getting what you deserve. <laughs> That's what he could have said, but he didn't say. He really did genuinely, sincerely wish that the dream and the interpretation had to do with the enemies of the king and not with Nebuchadnezzar. Indirectly, Daniel's words were a very prudent way for him to tell in advance, to tell the king in advance that the prediction of the dream was not good. This was like a little hint, you know, that he hesitated and didn't want to tell him. And he says, oh, I wish this was about your enemies. Don't you think Nebuchadnezzar's getting the picture? Uh-oh, this is not good. In fact, if the dream's correct interpretation was to get out, and I think that's why all the wise men came first, 
and then they were gone by the time Daniel came in. So it's just Daniel and the king. No one else hears about the interpretation. This is good. Because if that interpretation got out to others, it would really please Nebuchadnezzar's enemies to hear that he was going to be like a beast in the field for seven years. Wouldn't that be an easy time to take his kingdom away from him? Wouldn't that be an easy time to even assassinate him? And maybe that, maybe that was why the wise men could not figure out the interpretation. I don't know if it was by, because of fear that they didn't tell the king or if it was because God blocked them from understanding the interpretation in order to keep the meaning secret and thereby protect the king. You get it? Are you following me? Okay. So knowing it was his God-given duty and also the request of his earthly king, Daniel set about to interpret the dream. However, first what he did is he gave a quick review of the tree's description. He began, and wasn't this one of your questions? He began, as did the dream itself, he began with what? The good news or the bad news? He began with the good news. I have grandchildren. I say, you want the bad news or the good news first? <laughs> I'll say, give me the bad news first. I always say that. Let's get it over with. But God gave the good news first. So Daniel revealed, first of all, the association between the greatness of the tree and the greatness of the king and his dominion. That magnificent tree that reached unto heaven the tree with fair leaves and fruit, a plenty, you know, fruit to provide meat for all, and under which the beasts of the field dwelt, you know, in the shade, and upon whose branches all the birds of the heaven had their habitation, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar it represented him. He says, it is thou, O king. Who does that remind you of? Anyone else in the Old Testament said, Thou art the man. <laughs> Remember Nathan to David? Thou art the man. So he says, it is thou, O king. That tree represents you. Daniel's revelation of the tree's identity compares also with the golden head of the image of the dream back in chapter 2, that first God-given dream. That also pictured him, right? Just the head, the head of gold. As the first king of the times of the Gentiles, Nebuchadnezzar, the head, remember we talked about this, he actually, as the head, represents the entire period of time, the whole period of the times of the Gentiles. So these words um, could speak of mankind in general under the rule of all of the various successive Gentile kingdoms, which will end like beasts in the last seven-year period of the times of the Gentiles, right? They'll be living like beasts under the control of two beasts, beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land, the Antichrist and the false prophet. So basically what he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar you can take it a step further, is for all the, the world kingdoms, all the anti-God world kingdoms that have ever reigned since Nebuchadnezzar, and it's a warning, you know, listen to me, humble yourselves, turn to me, the choice, grace or grace, or you're going to wind up for seven years like beasts. Nebuchadnezzar and the, uh, <clears throat> the great green tree represented man, mankind, 
in all his own glory, apart from God, you know, tries to take the glory for himself, man attempting to be his own God and reach heaven his own way. You know, it says the tree reached up into heaven. Who else had tried to do that in Babylon? <laughs> Babel tried to reach God their own way. Um, so it represents mankind. Um, man making what he perceives to be his own good and fruitful life apart from God. Well, after reviewing the description of the tree, then Daniel in verse 23 reviewed the decree for the tree as it had been given by that angelic messenger called what kind of an angel? A watcher angel, a vigilant watcher angel, um, a zoan, like in the book of Revelation, one covered with eyes who sees everything and reports everything to God. This was a watcher angel. And according to the uh, decree given by the angel, the tree was to be cut down and trimmed. The branches were to be removed, the leaves were to be shaken off, and the fruit was to be scattered. But the stump, with the roots in the ground, was to be banded with what? Iron and brass. It would remain, the stump with the, the band around it would remain in the grass of the field, and there it would get wet every morning, you know, with the morning dew. It would feel the forces of nature on its body or his body. <laughs> you have, can't help but get into the interpretation part of it. But as the watcher switched pronouns, which we noted last time, remember he was talking about the tree as an it, and then it became a he and a him. As the watcher angel had done that, so does Daniel when he says... His portion would be with the beast of the field till seven times passed over him. Now, Daniel has not yet given the interpretation. He does that starting in verse 24. But, you know, it has to be increasingly evident to Nebuchadnezzar that this is not going very well for him. Wouldn't you agree? He's sitting there and it's just getting worse and worse. It started out with good. You know, he's a great tree. <laughs> mighty and powerful, and he feeds everybody, and it's just wonderful, but then all of a sudden, it gets pretty bad. So let's look now at the bad part, the bad news, the decree on the king, and for this, I'm going to read verses 24 to 27, and each verse is a different subject. We start out with judgment. I've got this on the board. Judgment, purpose, hope, and then Daniel's counsel. So read with me. Or be silent, I'll read. You look with me. <laughs> Daniel says, and this now is Daniel writing. Did you notice? The king will again start to speak after he comes out of his seven years of insanity. He'll begin to speak um, in verse 34. But right now, Daniel had to fill in all this other information. So let's look at verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High. See, it isn't really the decree of the watcher angel, is it? Do angels make decrees? And where do they get the decrees? From command center, right? So it's really the decree of God sent as, you know, through the angel because he's the messenger. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that they shall drive thee from men. And I didn't get the, uh, into this, but the they is probably the angels. That they shall drive thee from men 
and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. That's the judgment. Now here's the purpose. Or no, that was the purpose that I just read. Now here comes the hope, I think. The judgment was at the end. No, the purpose was at the end. <laughs> when he says, till thou know, that's the purpose. Okay, now verse 26, I think, is hope. And whereas, yeah, this is hope. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. In other words, God will hold it for you. After that, thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. And here is the counsel from Daniel himself. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. We'll stop there, and next week we'll finish the chapter. Okay, so Daniel proceeded to tell the king the interpretation of the, of the dream, which was a very, very serious warning of impending judgment from God himself. As I said, the angel was merely the messenger. The judgment itself was a mandate from God. That means it was the word of God in the form of a prophecy of punishment that the king was going to experience in the near future. Now, on the one hand, on the one hand, the great tree depicted, symbolized the majesty and the splendor of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. As the king assessed himself, as he assessed himself and his kingdom, which would be, of course, according to the world's standards of greatness, he had done very well. He looked at what he had done, what he had accomplished, and he said, wow, this is, you know, I'm really something. He basically, even as we'll see next week, kind of put himself above God. Look at all I have done. Who else had done that or wanted to replace God? Another king of Babylon, Satan, Lucifer. But, you know, as he assessed himself and as the world assesses Nebuchadnezzar, as they look back on history, they say, yeah, you know, he was great from the world's standards. He perceived that he actually reached into heaven by way of his own efforts. He even wanted people to basically worship him when he set up that golden image. You know, he was making himself out to be a god, just as those in the original Babel, Babel believed they could do, you know, reach heaven on their own. That's on the one hand. That's from man's perspective of the tree. But on the other hand, the tree revealed God's standard by which Nebuchadnezzar's reign was evaluated. Not only Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but all the reigns of all the kings and all the kingdoms that have ever existed, especially in the times of the, of the uh, Gentiles. You see, from God's perspective, the tree had not been created for the purpose of its own greatness. Now, remember this week I had you think of yourself as a tree, right? So when I talk about this, think of yourself as a tree that God planted on earth, okay? 
And here, of course, specifically, the tree is Nebuchadnezzar. But God didn't plant that tree. He didn't uh, nourish it and give it fertilizer and sunshine and rain and take care of it and cause it to grow so that it could take pride in its own splendor. Did he? Did he plant the tree so that it could be proud of the fruit it produced and the growth and, you know, that it grew so tall and how great it was? And even come to think that it was by way, he was so great, that the tree was so great that it was by way of his own abilities? The tree, you see, was God planted the tree. He planted each of us in order to provide shelter and provision for others like for the birds of the air. Now think of you, you know, with your family, you know, you're, you're the protector of your children and your grandchildren, and, you know, you've got your own little kingdom. Everybody has their own little kingdom, right? Um, but you're not a king. You're not even a queen. <laughs> We're there to glorify God. But the tree was to provide shelter um, and, and provision for the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and to provide nourishment for all the people of the earth, basically. That's why, you remember where the tree was planted? This is speaking of all the kingdoms, not just Nebuchadnezzar, but the tree was planted in the center of the earth, the central location in the earth, because all the kingdoms of men are to provide nourishment and protection for the people, the common people. The kings are put there, the presidents are put there to protect the people, Right? to care for the people. They're the servants of the people. That's what they should be. Well, the tree man, the tree man's going to become a lot of different men today, but he starts out as a tree. The tree man, Nebuchadnezzar, failed to understand, as do most earthly secular people, kings, leaders, leaders and people, uh, he failed to understand the purpose for his position and the kingdom that God entrusted to him. He neglected to see the reason for why he was in that position um, according to God's divine economy. That was the last thing he ever thought of. Why am I here to glorify God? He looked at everything in terms of how much power and how much glory he gained for himself, right? He was proud and he was self-centered. He didn't think in terms of God's ordained purposes. Of course he didn't. He didn't even know God. For example, he did not at all grasp the truth that God had used him as his servant, his tool to chasten his people Israel, and that God um, wanted to use him to preserve his people Israel for 70 years, to preserve them. So he wrongly, King Nebuchadnezzar wrongly, had taken a course of action that could have led to the destruction of the Jewish people. The fiery furnace episode. What would have happened if God had not intervened in Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael as representatives of the Jewish people if they had perished? What do you think those Chaldeans would have done? They would have pushed the king to say, okay, you've had success with this mandatory obeisance of the leaders, now let's have it for all the people of your kingdom so that everybody has to bow down before images. That would have been, just like in the time of Esther, that would have been the destruction of the whole, all the Jewish people because the faithful remnant of Israel, they would not have bowed, would they? So God had to intervene, and he demonstrated to the king his will, God's will for his people by delivering them, miraculously delivering their representatives out of the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and those evil Chaldeans. 
so too, rather than looking upon the wealth and the splendor and the power that he enjoyed, that the king enjoyed, rather than looking at it as his God-given stewardship that was to be used to benefit the weak and the poor, those under the realm of his tree, Nebuchadnezzar self-centeredly used his power to oppress those who were weak and poor and powerless. And it was for these failures that he would be brought low. Rather than being the great tree from which all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air could find food and shelter, he was going to be cut down. And actually, this is kind of funny, but he would actually join the realm of those earthly creatures. Interestingly, we are given two descriptions of King Nebuchadnezzar when he is in his afflicted state. And they're both found in verse 33. Won't get to this till next week, but look ahead. Two descriptions of him. Now, one describes him as eating grass like a what? An ox. What is an ox? A beast of the field. The other description of him is that he looks like a bird. He has hair like eagle's feathers and nails like bird's claws. Isn't that ironic? You know, he's supposed to be protecting the animal creatures of the whole world, and he's failing. You know, this is all kind of symbolic. He's supposed to be the, the God's uh, under-shepherd for the world, and he's failing because he's just enjoying everything for himself. And so God cuts him down, and he actually becomes like a beast of the field and a bird of the air. And, you know, he was so proud, he thought himself superior to all other men. And he oppressed other men. We're going to talk about that next week. If you forget how evil this man was, I'm going to remind you next week. We're going to do a review of the evil of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was wicked, and he really oppressed people, and he just did so much Bad, th bad stuff. But anyhow, he, he thought himself superior because I'm king, you know, and everybody else is beneath me. So he oppressed other men. And yet, what does God do in this decree, this judgment? It says he's, gonna, he's not even going to be worthy to dwell with men. It says there, uh, verse 25, that they shall drive thee from men. You won't even be able to live with men. You'll be out there with the beasts in the grass. God has a great way of humbling people, doesn't he? And he has a great sense of humor, too. Well, it was on the basis of Nebuchadnezzar's failure to live up to God's standard that he was going to be brought low. His restoration to his position of responsibility before God would come. When would it come? It would come when he would acknowledge that he is merely the Most High God's lowly servant whose power and position had been given to him so as to benefit and to bless others rather than take all the glory and all the pride for himself. And that's true not only for kings, but it's true for all of us. Well, Daniel described that impending divine judgment as it was revealed by the watcher in the dream. The king, as we just read, would be driven from men by the angels, 
to take up his dwelling with the beasts of the field where he would eat what? Grass. grass. Now in Aramaic, that word grass has more the general meaning of vegetation, that he would eat vegetation. And then it says he would be wet with the dew of heaven, you know, because he would live outside and every morning, you know, when it rained, he'd get wet. And when the dew came up, he'd get wet. I guess it didn't rain much in Babylon, so that's why they say do. Um, but how long would he be in that condition? Seven times, which we know from other scriptures, seven years, until seven years had passed. And then he would come to his sentence, senses. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, as he's hearing this interpretation from Daniel, he's sitting there, maybe on his throne, and he's surrounded by all the luxuries of his magnificent palace, uh, he has at his beck and call every kind of exotic food um, and pleasure that you could dream up. And he's sitting there listening to this. Do you know, he couldn't even begin to guess how literally, and I mean literally, this decree was going to be fulfilled. In his wild imagination, he couldn't imagine how literally this was going to be fulfilled. All right, here's where we get into our biology lesson. The word monomania, have you ever heard of that word before? Monomania, it comes from two Greek words. <clears throat> Mono means one, all right, you all know that. Mono means one. Mania comes from a word that means uh, unbalanced. <laughs> <laughs> crazy. I was trying to be polite. Crazy. Uh, unbalanced. So it, it speaks, it refers to a mental imbalance that causes psychological illusions in just one area of the brain, one realm. Now this is interesting. Just one realm, realm of the brain, while all other intellectual processes and sensibilities remain relatively normal. Have you wondered how could he come to his senses? How could he finally say, ah, you are the most high God and I'm going to, while he's down there like a cow? Well, it's because he's got this sickness in just one realm of his brain while the other part of his brain can still remember and think and act relatively normal. The monomaniac can think, as I just said, remember, and almost everything else is unchanged except for the affliction of insanity in that one part of his brain. Now, there's lots of different forms of monomania, okay? But the form of monomania that God struck upon King Nebuchadnezzar is known as lycanthropy. It comes again from two Greek words, lycus, which means wolf, and anthropos, what's the study of anthropology? Man. Study of man. Anthropos is the word for man. So it means wolf man, wolf man. And this is where the idea of werewolves come from. Because there have actually been men who have thought they turned into wolves. And they would go out on full moons and howl. <laughs> Crazy, yes. Uh, <laughs> lycanthropy is a rare, thank God, <laughs> a rare psychotic syndrome that involves a delusion that the affected person can be transformed into an animal. Now, the word lycanthropy is used in general 
to refer to all the various mind aberrations in which a person comes to believe that he is a beast or a bird of some kind and begins to live like one, howling or growling or tweeting <laughs> or crawling. Okay, so monomania, there's lots of different kinds of monomania. Under it is lycanthropy, there's, and they call that, even though it means wolf man, they just generally call it for all these other things that you can believe you are. All right? Now, in a review of medical records in early 2004, there's a list of over 30 published ca cases of lycanthropy, and only a minority of the patients actually thought they were wolf men or canine men. You know, some of them thought they were dog men, wolf men. But on, that was only a minority. There were people, and this was just recently, there are people in mental institutions who think that they are hyenas. There are people who think they are cats. So they see there really is a cat woman. <laughs> Horses, tigers. I mean, this was all in this report, 2004. Uh, foxes and birds. So I, I wanted to put up the, the name for bird. If you think you're a bird, that comes under the sickness called avianthropy. You know, aviation, a, that's the Latin word for bird. And anthropy, again, is, is so there really is a bird man of Alcatraz. <laughs> now, historical records tell of one particular man who was so convinced that he was a cock pheasant he would go roost in a tree. Some of these schizophrenic mind transformations, frogs, uh, some even have thought they were bees. There are even recorded cases of people who have thought they have become snakes. Now that's scary. Ugh. That's called, and I wrote that one up there, the yuck, Ophid Ophidianthropy. Well, another like Lycanthropic delusion is known as boanthropy, and it comes from, interestingly, a Latin word, bos, B-O-S, which means cow or ox, and anthropy, which means man. So it means a bull man or a cow man. I guess if it's a man, I should do bull, bull man. Now, it appears, it appears that King Nebuchadnezzar had a touch of both avianthropy, <laughs> bird man, and boanthropy. Thropy, bull man. Now, in studied cases of boanthropy, the first symptoms come with a tendency toward eating nothing but green vegetables. However, the next stage, which is generally about five months later, after the first month, the symptoms appear, it's unique to this particular uh, condition, but the patient will develop a liking from, veg from vegetables to guess what? grass, a liking for grass and certain species of wild flowers. The third stage is characterized by mooing, snorting, and the deep urge to plow fields. I mean, this is real. I looked it up on Wikipedia. This is, yeah. There have been documented cases where the victim has, has even sprouted small horns and taken to living in a stable. Oh, this is really sad, isn't it? Uh, eventually, if, if, they're, if they're not under mental care of some kind, you know, medicine or whatever, 
eventually it will result in a coma and death. Only so long you can eat grass and wildflowers and live like that, <laughs> it'll do you in. Nebuchadnezzar only lived one year after he went through this. So it really took a toll on his body. Well, R.K. <clears throat> Harrison, in his book, and he was a professor up at the Toronto, uh, University of Toronto, Canada, and a, a Christian scholar, in his book, The Introduction to the Old Testament, he wrote this. This is a quote. He says, quote, A great many doctors spend an entire busy professional career without once encountering an instance of the kind of monomania described in the book of Daniel. The present writer, speaking of himself, therefore considers himself particularly fortunate to have actually observed a clinical case of lycanthropy in a British mental institution in 1946. The patient was in his early 20s, who reportedly had been hospitalized for about five years. His symptoms were well developed on admission, and diagnosis was immediate and conclusive. He had lycanthropy. He was of average height and weight with good physique and was in excellent bodily health. His mental symptoms included pronounced antisocial tendencies. I guess if you go around mooing and snorting. You're not. And because of this, he spent his entire day from dawn to dusk outdoors in the grounds of the institution. His daily routine consisted of wandering around the magnificent longs, and it was his custom to pluck up and eat handfuls of the grass as he went along. On observation, he was seen to discriminate carefully between grass and weeds. And on inquiry from the attendant, the writer was told the diet of the patient consisted exclusively of grass from the hospital lawns. He never ate institutional food with other inmates, and his only drink was water. The writer was able to examine him, and the only physical abnormality noted consisted of a lengthening of the hair and a coarse, thickened condition of the fingernails. Without institutional care, this patient would have manifested precisely the same physical conditions as those mentioned in Daniel 4.23. So I said all that to tell you this really does happen. But Nebuchadnezzar's illness was a direct judgment of God. He, not, he didn't slowly develop these symptoms. They just hit him all at once, within one hour, it says. He was struck down immediately. He was stripped of all his dignity, not only as a king, but he was stripped of all his dignity even as being a man. Now, it is likely that servants watched over him with strict orders. I would think, and we'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing, I would think that the, the servants who took care of him had been given strict orders to keep him hidden from public view. Probably kept him in the palace gardens. Um, and I'm going to discuss some of the probable reasons on the human level why those of the Babylonian court would retain a king who had gone mad. If you look at history, there's been a lot of mad kings, but why would they keep him there instead of replacing him? Well, we'll talk about some of those reasons next week, but uh, of course, on the supernatural level, the primary reason Nebuchadnezzar still retained his throne was because God put a protective band of iron and brass around him. Well, um, there was a purpose. 
there, of course, there's always a purpose for everything. There was a purpose for this judgment, and that purpose had been given by the watcher in the dream, and it was also repeated by the king himself to Daniel. So Daniel, the king knew the purpose. He told the purpose to Daniel. The divine intent of the judgment so was that Nebuchadnezzar, and through him all who would hear or read his testimony of this chapter, would come to know that it is God alone who rules over human affairs, and he raises whoever he chooses to the place of king or head of state. We have to remember that this year, right, in our elections. It's God who puts them there. Well, there is a ray of hope in verse 26. It's found by the way of the preserve, preservation of that stump. It meant that the king wouldn't die. So you see, here's what God did in this. He gave good news, then he gave the bad news, and then he ended again with what? Good news. Well, that's the way to do it. Surround the bad news with good news on both sides. Uh, he wouldn't die, and he wouldn't lose his kingdom. He would, um, he would, he, the, God would ensure the seven-year safety, not only of King Nebuchadnezzar, but also of his kingdom. And that is pictured by that band. Um, until, you know, he would preserve him until he could once again exercise sane leadership and correct spiritual leadership which he does that last year of his reign. After seven years of utter degradation, did I drop, yeah, there it is. Do you know what this is? This is a Bible preventative slipper. Prevents your Bible from slipping down. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I don't go anywhere without it. Um, all right, so where was I? After seven years of utter shame and degradation, he would have learned his lesson. That part of his brain that could still remember and think, he would learn his lesson. The heavens do rule. That's what it says at the end of verse 26. He'll learn that. And we'll see that in his ending statement. Well, having given the king hope, then Daniel, of his own, gives him some free advice, his counsel. He makes an appeal to the king. And his counsel, verse 27, was for him to repent of his sins. And his main sin is pride. Repent of his sins and demonstrate mercy to the poor, to the oppressed. Because then the time of his tranquility might be lengthened. Now, you see, Daniel, he'd lived with the king a long time. He understood that the king's ego and pride blinded him to the fact of his utter dependence on God for everything. Now, Daniel had told him that many times. You know, God puts you in your position. He, he's sovereign. Everything you have, you owe to him. Daniel had told him that. Um, so here he, he suggests an option for the king. He could repent of his sins and put righteousness into his life. And an evidence that he had genuinely done that would be um, if he sincerely showed mercy to the poor and to the oppressed, that would give proof that he really had changed. You see, the way we treat our fellow man is the great demonstrator of the true nature of our heart, and especially the way we treat the covenant people of God is an indication of the true nature of our heart. Nebuchadnezzar imagined that he had become great 
and that he had grown strong by virtue of his own abilities, his own wisdom, his own everything, you know? And, and he would give a, a, a little nod to his gods, you know, give a little credit to them. Um, but mostly he took all the credit for himself, and it was for this reason that he needed to be cut down and humbled. You know, all these proud leaders of countries, I think of Putin and I think of some others that are so proud and arrogant. Just God will take care of them one day. They'll be cut down. They'll be humbled. Um, and, and he would be cut down. And that's not only true for leaders, it's true for anybody. Um, to come to his spiritual senses, however, he must lose his throne, his power, his wealth, his comforts, his diet. <laughs> I thought about how Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael became willing vegetarians, didn't they? In chapter 1, willing vegetarians so that they could obey God and please him. Here, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a forced vegetarian, and he learns how to become obedient to God. Um, but he had to lose everything. He even had to lose his sanity. But still, Daniel chapter 4 is a great love story, isn't it? It is a wonderful love story because the judgment of God upon this Babylonian king was to humble, not to harden his heart. It was to humble his heart so that he might receive spiritual vision and therefore, what else? Eternal life. It was the best thing that ever happened to the king, those seven years of eating grass and mooing <laughs> and having the urge to plow fields. <laughs> Well, if Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel's counsel, the Lord might let him continue the good life that he was enjoying. You know, see, this judgment could be conditional. If Nebuchadnezzar had repented, his beastly experience might never have happened. I think of Jonah's message to Nineveh, you know, impending doom, but what did they do from the king on down? Everyone repented sackcloth and ashes, and what did God do? He didn't send the judgment. And we have Peter's appeal, even after the Jewish religious leaders had crucified the Son of God, Peter appeals to them and says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. You see, judgment is coming, but, but if men repent, that judgment may be postponed, put off, whatever, even not happen. It takes, of course, a great deal of boldness on Daniel's part. I asked you this week what you admire about Daniel. Well, I admire the fact that he could love the king who was so evil and hurt him so much. I admire that, but I also, of course, again, admire his boldness. It takes a lot of boldness, it takes a lot of confidence, and it takes a, a years of proven faithfulness to stand before the mightiest, the most egotistical rule, ruler on the planet and like Nathan did with David, call him a sinner. And that's exactly what Daniel does. His willingness to do so was actually, think about this, his willingness to confront Nebuchadnezzar with his sin was actually Daniel, the, the greatest proof of Daniel's sincere love for the king. When you tell someone they're a sinner and they're on their way to hell, and you do it with love because you were, you know, the same way before your salvation. We're all sinners saved by grace, right? But that is your, the greatest demonstration of love that you can show that person. 
I told that to my dad when I was witnessing to him. I said, Dad, I don't need to take this abuse from you. I'm doing it because I love you. I love you so much. I want you to be in eternity with God and all that he is, light and love and kindness and gentleness and grace and mercy. I don't want you to be apart from God in darkness forever and ever. Isn't that the greatest proof of our love that we witness to someone and tell them the truth? It is. So that in doing this, Daniel was really showing he cared about the king. It took courage for him to inform his earthly master that his rule was marred by his pride and by the oppression of his people. His outright candor could have cost him his high position, and even worse, it could have cost him his life, couldn't it? But nonetheless, he did it anyway. However, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a choice. You know, he had the choice, didn't he? Grace or grace. But he did what so many people do. What's that? Well, I'll think about it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, he put it on the back burner. He kind of just wanted to forget about it. It was pretty scary. And it was so crazy sounding that I'm sure he thought, eh. And then he took God's probationary period of time, uh, uh, period of grace there. He gave, God gave him 12 months to repent before he struck him. And it was only when the king was crowing from the rooftop, saying how wonderful he was that he had done, you know, created this great city, that he struck him. But he gave him 12 months, probationary grace. And yet, he didn't. He picked the wrong choice, didn't he? He decided to graze for seven years. Sad, sad. Well, I'll send out the email probably who knows when because I've got my oldest daughter's four children for two days, so <laughs> we'll be very fortunate if you get it before the week is over. No. <laughs> we had fun. That was fun. Wasn't that a fun biology lesson? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Let me close in prayer. Lord, you said through your prophet, repent, repent. In effect... You offered Nebuchadnezzar what you offer every single person. Turn from your sin. And we're all sinners. All of us fall short of the glory of God. You offer every one of us to repent. And you say, you will turn to us. You speak this to us individually, everyone in this room today, and you speak it to us nationally. You speak to America today. Repent. Turn to me. Or there is a judgment day coming for this nation. Thank you, Father, for your many, many warnings. Thank you for your pleadings. Thank you for many examples from history past on the consequences of those people and those nations who refuse to heed your call. And thank you for the gracious period of probation that you always give, not, not because, only because none of us really know that that time of opportunity, uh, how long it might be. I mean, today, you could call some of us home today. We may not have, as Nebuchadnezzar had, 12 months. We don't know. That's why you say, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. May we not presume to have another day. And I pray, Father, that your spirit will whisper that appeal loud and clear to any, any heart that here, might be here today that does not yet know you that she would acknowledge herself a sinner in desperate need of the one and only Savior, 
your son, the Lord Jesus, who took all of her sins, all of all of our sins upon himself so that you, Father, might see us cleansed and wrapped in the righteousness of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.